Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall. Just in case you need a reminder, it is already May 2020. It's a very important month because since 1949, this entire month has been dedicated to mental health awareness. Now, if there was ever a year that we really need to focus on recovery, healing, and renewal, this, my friends, would be the year. My goodness, what a year we're having. Plus, of course, May is also the month that holds the very special National Nurses Week, which is May 6th to 12th, and it kicks off on Nurses Appreciation Day on May 6th. Make sure you show your appreciation for your colleagues, your coworkers, the people in your communities. And I'd like to express our thanks from the entire Digital Health Today community. We really appreciate everything that you're doing, and we hope you get all the support and resources that you need to do your job while you work to keep all of our communities and loved ones well. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now we're about two months into lockdown. The COVID-19 situation is beginning to stabilize across the U.S. and Europe, and some areas are showing some signs of improvement. And many of us, especially healthcare workers, politicians, and parents of school-aged children, are collectively holding their breath to see what course the pandemic may take next. This period of lockdown, sheltering in place, quarantine, or whatever you're going to call it, it's having a huge impact on everyone. Aside from the physical toll it's having on people's health, it's also having a significant effect on our mental health as well. I recently read an article in Sky News that reported about a helpline that's designed to support children whose parents are battling alcoholism, and it reported that calls from children have doubled during the lockdown. That got me thinking. What are people who are battling substance use disorder doing to safeguard their health when their usual access for support has been removed? And to make matters worse, they're confined in their homes, potentially facing relationship, financial, or work-related problems, and they're looking for something to help them pass the time and maybe just to help take away some of their pain. Well, today's guest has firsthand knowledge about what it's like to battle addiction, and fortunately, she's turned her attention on how to improve the situation for people on their own journeys. My guest is Daniela Tudor, who is herself recovering from substance use disorder. That actually reminds me of one of the first things that I learned when preparing for this interview, and that is that the accepted term is substance use disorder, not substance abuse disorder. That's just one small change in terminology that's trying to take away some of the stigma that exists for people who are working to recover from addiction. Daniela is the CEO of WeConnect Health Management, which you can find at weconnectrecovery.com. Their mission is to reverse the 80% relapse rate of those in their first year of recovery and to support people throughout the recovery journey. It's a company she started with her co-founder, Murphy Jensen. You may remember him from his professional tennis career as a Grand Slam doubles champion. He and his older brother, Luke, teamed up to win the 1993 French Open doubles title. I remember that. We'll talk about how she and Murphy teamed up toward the end of the program. It involves a competition and a trip to Sir Richard Branson's Necker Island. Daniela, thanks for joining me and welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today. Daniela, let's start off by understanding a little bit about your background. You're now the CEO and co-founder of WeConnect Recovery. Your career actually started years ago working with technology companies. And here we're going to talk today about substance use disorder. So can you give us an understanding about how all these different components sort of layer together to give a foundation for what we're going to be discussing today? Absolutely. So my background professionally was in technology, building large enterprise teams for 
clients like Microsoft and always had an entrepreneurial bug. My dad encouraged me from a young age to explore that. And so I dove right into entrepreneurship after having a career in building out tech teams. And that startup was in a very niche space in the music industry, very niche product. And my co-founder for that, who's my best friend today, she told me in the most unconditional loving way that I was actually suffering from substance use disorder. And at that time, growing up in an Eastern European immigrant family, there wasn't a lot of talk about behavioral health or addiction. And so when she told me that and I was able to hear her, I started my recovery journey. And that recovery journey has led me to We Connect Health. There's a lot you just said there. I just want to pick up on that last part about the conversation that you had with your business partner, your roommate, and who is now your best friend. Was that a surprise that she was having that conversation with you? Were you caught off guard at all that this was an issue that she needed to address with you? Um, it was a surprise in the sense that I'd been living in both the denial side of it for a long time because also the background that I came from, I was a really hard worker. I was just as much, so to speak, probably addicted to overworking as I was to suffering from substance use disorder. And so hearing how the magnitude of how me going through this was affecting other people in my life, I hadn't really recognized that to that point. But otherwise, you know, I'd been internally struggling with a lot of things that came from the trauma of my growing up in immigrant asylums when I was little, also had someone significant in my life pass away from an overdose when I was 19. And so a lot of that trauma was unresolved and it contributed to me having a substance use disorder in a big way. But it wasn't so much that she helped me identify the problem, but also that it was something that I could go out and solve for because up until then, I really felt a lot of guilt and shame and the stigma that still surrounds this issue in our world today. And so it was more about realizing that there could also be a potential for a solution, much more so than her highlighting the problem because I think internally I knew that. I just didn't know how much it was affecting others and much less so that I could go and solve it. Well, you said she's your best friend today. I'm presuming that you were good friends then. And that must have been hard for her to have that conversation with you. And I'm sure there was a lot of internal discussion that she was having with herself about how to present it, how to confront you with this. What were some of the things that she was experiencing and the people around you were experiencing that made this an issue that she wanted to help you be aware of and help resolve? Absolutely. I mean, we had built a niche product in the music industry. And so we would go out and quote unquote network, go to events, go to music festivals. And the difference was, is that the next morning she would get up and do yoga, whereas I would continue for three to five days. And although I've always been a motivated, ambitious worker over time, that's not sustainable. And so it started affecting our business. We were also roommates doing the business together at the time started affecting our relationship because I started becoming just absent in a lot of ways. Emotionally, as a friend, it was hard for me to keep commitments. And then our business sort of started going on the downward curve because I just wasn't as productive anymore. You know, substance use disorder is a progressive chronic illness. And so over time, it can progress slowly or it can hit sort of like a very downward spiral very quickly. And so I was about at that point when she came and talked to me and she really did it out of love. She said, because I, I care about you so much and I know the potential that you have if you go and take care of this issue. And so 
it was difficult for her to present and we've talked about it a lot since, but it was more that she had so much belief that better things could come out of addressing it that really drove her to address what was happening. And what was your response when she had that conversation with you? Did you just say, yeah, you're right, and then march right off to find some rehab program? Or were you in denial? Did you consult with other people? Yeah. So when she confronted me, because she did it in such a loving, caring way, I was able to hear her and I recognized that there was a problem. But I really didn't know, despite her saying that there were solutions, and I was starting to believe that, I, I still felt that the responsibility was on me to address it alone and come to find out that recovery from substance use disorder requires community, requires human connection as a part of the solution. And I didn't know that at the time. So I went to one Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, a 12-step meeting. I was told, hey, you should come back regularly and at that time, I wasn't ready to do it regularly. And things actually took a much worse downward turn before I got consistent help. But I still see that conversation she had with me as the biggest turning point because it tuned me to the fact that this is a major issue that's affecting everything in my life. So I moved back to Seattle, took back an old recruiting job. And for about 18 months, I tried to solve this on my own. But every time that I would stop using, after a day or two later, I would fall back into an even worse binge. And so finally, I got a DUI. And when I missed my arraignment for my DUI, I got arrested. And that's when the second big turning point came. And I realized I really could not stay alive with substances, but I didn't know how to live without them. And so I locked myself in my parents' home for three days until I could find a bed to go into a treatment program because it took me that long to find a treatment program that had availability in the area and then checked myself in. And that's when everything changed. Wow. I'm so glad that you got the help that you needed. How long between the initial conversation with your best friend and checking into a rehab program? That was uh, nearly 18 months. So it still took a long time. But if you compare it to my journey of substance use disorder, which really started when I was 17, when I went to college, it was, you know, kind of a blip in comparison to the experience of ups and downs that I had the decade prior. Wow. 11 years of struggle mm -hmm. with substance abuse. That must be really difficult to go through. And you're not alone in having this. There shouldn't be the stigma and seeking help and experiencing this that there is. I mean, how big of a problem is this in the U.S.? Absolutely. I mean, substance use disorder affects one in 10 Americans. And so that's not even looking at the global scope of the problem. 20.8 million Americans are in long-term recovery and 23 million are seeking recovery services. And so this is a huge problem, but I really did not know. One, I didn't know how big the problem was until I landed in inpatient treatment. And that's where the idea for We Connect Health came up and where I had my huge life turning point. But there's also still this sense, which is being overcome over time, that people are not equating physical health to mental health. And the truth is, is that they're parallel, they're alike. It's just as important to treat your mental health as you would your physical health. Substance use disorder is a lifelong chronic illness, just like diabetes requires insulin. With substance use disorder, you require therapy or community support or medically assisted treatment. But I think in our society, that's still an evolving conversation to curb the stigma. So once you enter recovery, what is that process like? Because as you mentioned, this is something that goes on forever. So you're having an acute intervention when you 
checked yourself into that unit. What's that process like? And tell me about sort of that first year. Yeah. So it was all news to me that there was all these different pathways to recovery. So when I landed in an inpatient treatment, which by the way, I was fortunate to do, two things happened that not every person in America has the privilege to get. One, my employer kept me on insurance so the cost could be covered. And then also my parents were able to pay the copay. And so I was really fortunate in that regard to be able to enter this program. And in that program, the first thing I discovered was that all of these people from different walks of life, businessmen, athletes, women that were pregnant, experiencing homelessness, we were all there for this common thing that we were experiencing. And I felt a sense of human connection I'd never felt before. Second, I learned that this is a chronic health condition and that there's solutions for it, such as 12-step meetings, therapy, and then in some cases, not mine, but certainly a lot of cases, medically assisted treatment. So those first four weeks, you're there by yourself with those folks, but no phone access, no internet access, and lots of programming around therapy, group therapy, reading materials, exercises. And then it's shared with you what you're supposed to do when you leave. And that's in the form of a piece of paper. It's called your care plan. And it's handed to you and you're told, okay, do all of these things on a daily or weekly basis and you'll stay in long-term recovery. So at the end of that 28-day program, I'm supposed to enter a recovery housing program, go to 12-step meetings, go to therapy, go to outpatient, change the way that I ate and exercised. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is really overwhelming for anybody to take on. There's got to be a better way to do this than rather just handing them a piece of paper. The other experience I had on my first day leaving treatment is I went through a Starbucks line and my credit card had been shut off. And I returned the drink because I realized, oh my gosh, they said, you know, your card has declined. But the barista instead gave me back the Starbucks drink and gave me a free cake pop, which is only $1.50. It's just a cake pop. But that act of kindness and that incentive and that reward, I felt really motivated that day to continue on with the activities I had. So I thought there might be something to this reward mechanism and then taking that care plan and doing something with those two things and looking at the research that supports that to create a better system for somebody entering recovery in their first year and beyond. So my first year involved all of those activities though. I mean, nine hours a week of outpatient therapy, 12-step meetings, changing the way that I ate and exercised. So it was a very intensive uh, year. And all of those activities, while they're not as hour intensive on a weekly basis, I still continue all of those activities today. I want to go back to that issue of relapse and staying abstinent. Mm -hmm. What is the abstinence rate and how many people are successful staying sober that first year after discharge? Absolutely. So in that first year, 80% of people have a reoccurrence event, a relapse event. So really the success rate, depending on what modality you're looking at is between 10 to 20%. And that, you know, a lot of those instances end up in overdose and death. So this is a huge, huge statistic that needs to be addressed. As I was listening to you describe the program that you went through, there was an element of human connection that you felt, which is something that we're missing right now in a lot of ways during the COVID-19 crisis. We're not able to have that human connection. And you also mentioned go to several things, go to meetings, go to therapy, go to this, go to that. And right now, mm -hmm. there are millions of people in the U.S. who are not able to participate 
in their therapy. Are you hearing about that? Are you in the circles where people are talking about the, the crisis that we're in? We can't go to the stores as frequently as we want, but people can't get to their meetings and their support groups. What's the impact on communities right now while that's going on? Absolutely. I mean, that impact is really huge. That's something that I realized as soon as we went into stay-at-home suggestions, which rightfully so should be done to curb the crisis, I immediately had this thought, oh my gosh, not only what's going to happen to people that are already in long-term recovery, that really rely on going to these activities in person and have that human connection, but what's going to happen to people that are fresh out of treatment who are even more at risk And then also the folks that have, you know, mental health conditions or perhaps hard drinkers and maybe don't have a diagnosis of substance use disorder, but you're really putting them in a place of isolation. And the risk for increasing the rate of addiction could go up exponentially as well during this time. So immediately it was a big concern of mine. So obviously we're in a very connected world now. There are lots of opportunities where people are getting onto the Zoom platform. That's something I've used for many years. Uh, I think over a decade, actually, I've been a Zoom user, but now it's obviously getting very, very popular. And a lot of people are getting on. Is an online meeting a tool that people are using to try to stay engaged in their therapy and stay engaged with their groups? Absolutely. You know, we started online virtual groups about four weeks ago. And we've had comments and testimonials that have ranged from, I just got out of treatment. If this meeting didn't exist, I would have gone out to drink. Or folks that, like you mentioned, you know, folks that said, I never tried a video platform, period. But I didn't realize, one, how easy it is. And I do feel a sense of community and connected on here. So the response has been incredible amongst the virtual support meetings that have been cropping up everywhere. So I do want to come on to what you're doing at We Connect Health in terms of some of the solutions that you're driving, because I think it's really important that people see what health innovators and digital health innovators are doing and making available, particularly during this time of pandemic and crisis. But just generally around digital health, you mentioned that you walked out with a paper and the guide of what you were supposed to do for the next nine months or 12 months, and probably essentially for the rest of your life, a lot of it, as you continue to stay in recovery. So how did you see, how did you connect the dots and what are some of the things that are being done to provide digital health tools to try to be a better companion and better guide than a piece of paper? Absolutely. Um, That moment when I realized that all we were being handed was a piece of paper, I had this realization that everybody carries around smartphones. Even folks experiencing homelessness have smartphones. And so I thought there's got to be a better way to provide human connection, accountability to those care plan activities, and then some sort of incentive and reward to keep the motivation and the connection when it comes to sustaining long-term recovery. So we've combined those three into a mobile application where people are accountable and can log into their either virtual meetings or telehealth or their in-person appointments. And in return for that, they can earn things like Amazon gift cards that are being used by the members leveraging our platform for food, household items, and now more recently, medical supplies. All of that is grounded in evidence-based research called contingency management, which has been proven to be the standalone single most effective technique when treating substance use disorder. And it is that concept that leveraging incentives or rewards keep somebody on track with any behavior change that they're looking to make. Tell me more about this incentive model. How does that work? 
Yeah, so our data science team looked at the research of contingency management, and they gleaned from it that around 800 to 1,000 US dollars per year to give someone the ability to earn that caused significant behavior change in terms of those folks that have a treatment program ahead of them or a care plan. However, up until we connect came along, until we came along, the way that that was administered was that somebody could earn the incentive in the form of a coupon or voucher, and they would receive it via direct mail or a week later going to the clinic. We found through the research that the immediacy, the reward makes a huge impact. And so when people are using the mobile application and they check into that, there's several challenges in the app over time. And so your first challenge is to set up your profile and check into your first care plan activity through the app. And so when you complete these challenges, there's different increments of that $800 that you can earn throughout the year that you earn. And then you immediately receive your gift card for Amazon. So it's an instant reward. And that makes also a big difference. So one of the things that really limits the growth of digital health tools, number one, is the necessity to change. And we are at a unique time in our history of requiring we change the way we do things, but then also business models. So what can you tell us about the use of your product right now in this time of crisis, as well as the business model that you've adopted in order to be able to get this into use? So there's two sides to that. One is, of course, patient engagement and the member getting the best use out of the app is most important. And so we've invested a lot in both the research UI UX to make the app usable, fun, and useful to use across all demographics. The second part is that because our mission is to really impact people's lives, which is synonymous with reducing things that are high costs like ED stays and going back to inpatient readmission, the focus is on increasing preventative care like medically assisted treatment therapy and anything else that might be on the care plan. We knew that the onus of payment should not be on the patient themselves. And so we partner with large health plans and managed care organizations, and that's typically in a value-based payment model. So the onus is, of course, on us to make sure that the app is creating the impact that it is shown to do in terms of patient engagement and the efficacy of the care plans. And the other model, sometimes also leveraged by the plans with us, is on a per-member, per-month basis. But really, it's a B2B to C model. You must hear stories back from users about how this has impacted their life. Can you share anything that you've heard back? Has anyone come back and just expressed what the difference has been in their personal situation? Absolutely. We get those almost daily. We have a customer feedback channel where the folks leveraging the app can fill out a survey and give us feedback. We've had stories from, I've used my Amazon gift card to buy a car part so I could fix my car and continue to go to my job, to I got gifts and food for my kids. I was able to get my kid a gift for the first time for their birthday. So these incentives are being used in ways that are really impacting and helping with people's basic needs. And then the other side is, is the app itself and the core motivational and accountability aspect of it. We've got some testimonials where folks have said, I've never made it to six months or to a year of recovery or to seven months of recovery, but now with WeConnect, I have. And so the feedback we get is on the hardest day as an entrepreneur, you have a lot of those. Like I just looked at that channel to remind me of why I started this in the first place. And um, it's a big motivator for me. I saw on your website that one of your co-founders is one of the Jensen brothers who people growing up when I did 
will uh, remember the Jensen brothers and their rise to fame and their celebrity. How did you guys decide to join forces to create We Connect Health? Yeah, so that's a pretty wild story. As I mentioned, I'd come up with the idea with We Connect Health just as I was leaving my inpatient program. And in those first 90 days of recovery, I noticed that online that there was a contest to submit your top three bucket list items and you could win a trip to Necker Island and meet Richard Branson. Now, Richard Branson had been an inspiration to me in terms of an entrepreneur for a long time. And it was hosted by a company called Bucket Dream, one of the sponsors for Necker Cup. And so I submitted my application and I won the contest. So (laughs) I took my first 12-step sponsor with me on the trip and I meet Richard Branson. I'm sitting there on the, the tennis court and I'm watching a very charismatic gentleman referee the game, but he was not participating in the drinking (laughs) and the partying that was going on. And I thought that was really curious, but we didn't talk at that point. I come back from the trip and someone in my outpatient program says, hey, I think it was something like my sister's or my ex-girlfriend's sister is married to this guy who I think was on the trip with you and he's in long-term recovery and he used to be a professional athlete. And I think you should tell him about your idea. Hmm. So I said, sure. And Murphy at the time, being in long-term recovery, part of that is you know helping people. He'd come to Seattle to visit his in-laws and he got linked with this individual because he was fresh in recovery. And so Murphy took him to a meeting and this individual said, you should meet this gal named Daniela and you guys should talk. And so Murphy and I got on a phone call and a couple months later, we met up in a fish market. I brought some of the salmon that my dad had caught and gifted it to him. And then a few months later after that, he moved his family up to Seattle and we decided to tackle the company together. And for Murphy, he has an incredible network of people due to his professional career in tennis and just being an incredible networker. And he wanted to do something meaningful with that network. And so this was the idea that he chose and and I'm very lucky to have him as my co-founder. So what are you looking for now? What can some of our listeners think about and how can they participate or engage or support the work that you're doing at WeConnect? I would say first and foremost, we are offering free virtual support meetings for anybody that needs it during this time. So if you or anybody else in your life is in need of support, you can find those at WeConnectRecovery.com. And um, second, we are hiring more certified peer recovery support specialists to support our growth. So those two things, if you want to participate and check up our job openings as well as participate in the virtual support meetings. All are welcome to those meetings. It's for folks with substance use disorder, mental health conditions, but also if you're just having quality of life concerns. And people can find that by going to your website and downloading the app. Is that the best way to do it? The virtual meetings are actually just right off the web browser. So those are super easy. So weconnectrecovery.com, you can find the meetings right on the homepage. Brilliant. Okay. Very good. Daniela, thank you so much for coming and being a part of the program. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I'm sorry about some of the struggles that you had personally, but so wonderful to see you take all of your energy, your talent and experience and authenticity that you have and really pour it into something that's going to have an impact for potentially millions of people and the people who care about them. So thank you very much for doing your work and for sharing it on our program. Well, thank you for being such a great host, um, for having me on and also giving a voice to this issue. I really appreciate you and it's been a wonderful experience. 
And that brings us to the end of another episode of Digital Health Today. Thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of our community. You can find links to this episode, as well as conversations with dozens of other great guests by visiting us on digitalhealthtoday.com slash podcasts. You can also find our shows, as well as hundreds of other great episodes on our second home at Health Podcast Network. You can find that at healthpodcastnetwork.com. No matter where you find us, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and our newsletter to be kept up to date on the latest episodes, news, and events. Yes, there are still events going on. They're all virtual, but there are still events going on. This has been another episode of Digital Health Today, a production of Mission Based Media. Music and audio engineering for this episode was by Ivan Jurich. I'm Dan Kendall, and I've been your host. Thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep on innovating.